continue on in our uh, series in the book of Acts. Now, coming to Acts chapter 17 and the opening 15 verses there. Please take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty for you. And uh, you can find Acts chapter uh, 17 on page 926. Continuing on uh, Paul's uh, second missionary journey, now to Thessalonica and then to Berea, in chapter 17, the word of God. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that's Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord in it remains forever. I'm curious what you think ranks as, as the most paradigm-shifting, world-changing events, world-altering events that have ever happened uh, throughout the course of human history. I scoured the internet to see what historians and philosophers and even average Americans like you and me had to say to that question. Of course, things like the invention of the wheel were mentioned, uh, the invention of writing, Uh, historical events like the Pax Romana or the Protestant Reformation, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution were all listed. Uh, To that, people also added the market crash of 1929, uh, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, the Archduke Ferdinand, 
which I suppose was actually before the market crash, so these aren't necessarily chronological. So that was 1914, then the market crash, 1929. Uh, many people um, said uh, to the, the Pew Research Center, uh, interviewed Americans not too long ago, said, what was the greatest um, turning point of your life, historical event in your lifetime? And September 11th was mentioned by 70% of those who were interviewed. And, of course, the recent uh, events of the coronavirus pandemic of 2019 and 2020 uh, would be things that are understood to have set in motion a chain reaction of events that went on to change the world as we know it. But do you know what nobody listed uh, in, the, in this, in, in this um, question? Nobody answered to that question of, of things that changed the world. Do you know what no one listed? The simple preaching of the gospel. And yet... You'll note that it's the Jews in Thessalonica who said that people who go and preach the gospel have turned the world upside down. Well, I shouldn't say that nobody has acknowledged this because there is one uh, famed historian and author. His name is Tom Holland, not Spider-Man. I know some of you are thinking that. He's an English uh, author and historian, Tom Holland, and he published just a few years ago a 600-page book called Dominion, subtitle, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And his argument in that book is that the world as we know it, nearly every aspect of the world as we know it, the way we think as individuals, the way we interact as a society, owes, its, uh, owes itself to the influence of Christianity. And he says, even if we reject the Christian faith, which he does, he is an atheist, even if you reject the Christian faith, you can't deny the influence or the impact that Christianity has had and that is still felt today. And this is what he writes at the beginning of that tome in the preface. He says, How was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an ex obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring change on the world? And you know what answer he never manages to give in 600 pages is this. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But friends, once you see that about the word of God, that it is able to save, then you will be transformed. That's what I want us to consider this morning as we look at, at the word of God and the effect that it has here in Paul's second missionary journey. Note first this about the word of God, that it is sufficient. It is sufficient. We see that from the Apostle Paul, that it is sufficient for him to accomplish the massive missionary task that laid before him. Luke tells us that in, in Thessalonica and many other places as well, he essentially he has one tool, one tool only, the Word of God. We find that he and Silas and, and Timothy, uh, now in Thessalonica, uh, and there Luke tells us that Paul does the same old, same old, right? He went in as was his custom, and for three Sabbath days, we're told, he reasoned from the scriptures. You know, he asked, why did he do this three weeks, three weeks in a row? Presumably because he hadn't convinced everyone after one week. Nor had he convinced them all by week two. And yet when week three rolls around and he's seeing that still not everybody is convinced, you know what hasn't changed? His method. He doesn't change his method. He still reasons from the scriptures every single week. Why? Why does Paul camp out here? Why does he camp out with the Holy Scriptures? 
Why is this sufficient for the task at hand? And why should it be sufficient for us as well? Well, to answer that properly, we need to understand what the task is. To understand why the word of God should be central in the church, we need to ask what the mission of the church is. If the mission of the church is to, is to uh, engender fellowship opportunities, then the word of God has little place. If, if the church is about entertainment, then you want to look outside of the scriptures. If the church is primarily about promoting social change, social justice, then political activism more than biblical study, Bible study, will be what you want to focus on. But if the mission of the church is to convert sinners and to conform saints more and more to the image of Christ, in other terms, If the mission of the church is something that is supernatural, something that no mere man can do, then you need something that no mere man can offer. And that's what we find in the Bible. A supernatural power. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts, even the intentions of the heart. No other book can do that. And that's why by week three, Paul hasn't given up on the scriptures. He hasn't said, well, it didn't work the first two weeks. Now I need to try something different. He knows that if there's going to be success from his mission, it will be because of the word of God. Because the word of God alone can do a work that changes the hearts of men, the lives of of the people with whom he's sharing it. True disciples get that. Jesus himself said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations Teaching them, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Friends, as the church, we've been entrusted with the word of God. That's, that's what we share, nothing else. Because it's when the spirit of God applies the word of God that people can really be changed. It's sufficient for Paul's task. We could ask a further question about the sufficiency of scripture. And that question is this. What makes it sufficient? Why is it that the word of God is enough to change the heart of men? And the answer is simply this. It's because the Bible tells us about Jesus. The Bible's about Jesus. An old spiritual chorus went like this. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Well, that's what the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us simply Christ it's the story of the Son of God come in the flesh as Jesus of, Naz- as, of, Jesus of Nazareth, as the long-awaited Messiah, the, the Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's wonderful promises to, to his people. And that's what we see in verse 3. Look at the burden of Paul's preaching. It says he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let's be honest. Uh, The Bible is a big book. There's a lot of stuff in here. There's a lot of good stuff. There's only good stuff in here. You can learn a lot of important things from the Bible. But you don't have real, true preaching if you're just explaining the Bible and leaving out its main character. 
Real true preaching comes when you show how the Bible is all about Christ. That's, that's what Paul is doing. It says that, that he, he was proving that Jesus was the Messiah. The word in the ESV translated proved actually means to, to set before, to place in front of. Like you would place a dish before somebody if you're serving them at your, your home. And that's real preaching. When Christ is placed before the hearers. Here he is. He's for you. He's not a fantasy. He's real. He is the Messiah. Take him. And so, biblical preaching is Christ-centered preaching. And it's not only Christ-centered, but it's evangelistic. Because Paul's not assuming that everybody shares his belief system. Rather, it says he reasons, he explains, he proves. We aren't given the notes from this particular sermon, but we might make some educated guesses about what text Paul might have appealed to. Perhaps Micah 5, verse 2, which said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Maybe Isaiah seven fourteen that he would be born of a virgin. Perhaps Genesis 49, that declared that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. Or 2 Samuel 7, he'd be the heir of, of David. Undoubtedly, he had to appeal to Isaiah 53 or, or Psalm 22, Psalm 35, Psalm 69, that all showed that the Messiah would suffer and would be killed for the sins of the people. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of men in the long history of humanity who have suffered in a similar way as described in those passages, uh, who have suffered a similar fate of, of being killed for crimes they did not commit. We know even in our own country the sad stories of people falsely accused and sentenced for for crimes that they did not commit, perhaps some even receiving the death penalty unjustly. But there's only one man of whom the psalmist says this in Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. There is only one innocent man who dies but then is raised again. And that is Jesus Christ. And so then, then Paul is, is putting to the people, and I put it to you today, what's the only reasonable conclusion when dozens of predictions are made, hundreds of years apart from one another, written by different authors in different life settings, they're all making these different predictions and prophecies, and yet they all come true in the life of a single individual, one man. What's the only reasonable conclusion that he's no man at all? That he's more than a mere man. One who can't even stay dead. And Paul says, this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Christ. That message is sufficient for ministry. And it's sufficient for conversion. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That means it's sufficient for you today as well. It's sufficient for you to be converted. Some of you here today need to be converted. You don't need anything else to be saved besides me telling you the message of the Bible. That if you want forgiveness for sins, if you want the guarantee of God's favor, if you want to know that heaven is, is your future home, it's all there. You just need to believe that Jesus is Lord. It's sufficient. We see as we continue on through this chapter, the Bible is more than sufficient. We see that the word of God is radical. 
it will either radically transform you or it will radically offend you. That's the second part of the story. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous. The people are being converted to Christianity. And so they, they formed a mob and it says they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason. It's trying to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd. Poor Jason, he gets caught up in the middle of this. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we can make a good assumption that he's likely the, the host of the, the small church plant that's beginning in Thessalonica. And they don't want him as much as they want the apostles, but they think maybe he'll be the way to get them. And they bring him before the authorities, and they make this startling claim that the apostles have turned the world upside down. And let's examine that claim for a moment. And we want to say, first off, that in the way these jealous Jews mean it, they are entirely wrong. Because they're trying to, they're making a political assertion here. They're saying that the apostles are incendiaries. They're political revolutionaries. They're a threat to the Roman government. And that's not true. It wasn't true of these people. And it's never been true when Christian, of Christians when Christianity is properly understood. When Christians recognize that they belong to another world their engagement with this world takes on a, a, a particular tone, an erratic one, a peaceful one even. Because we see that Christians are willing to suffer great injustices done to them in this world because why? Their hope isn't in this world. And so they're never meant to be revolutionaries in that sense. A recent example, we could take the Christian response to the French satirical magazine, uh, Charlie Hebdo. Uh, a blasphemous magazine that just tried to offend everybody. And for years, they would publish articles um, that, that ridiculed the Christian faith. Catholic, Catholics and Protestants alike endured much mocking of their savior, of their religion over the years. And they endured that. But when the jokes were made against Muhammad and Allah in 2015, Muslims in short order killed 12 of the workers of that periodical, an action that makes sense when you adhere to the theology of jihad or the caliphate, but it doesn't work in Christianity. It doesn't work in the Christian faith. That's not our way. So these people were wrong to say that they turned the world upside down. But on the other hand, they were absolutely right, weren't they? Because the Christian message does turn the world upside down. Take, for example, the values of the kingdom of God as we find them in Matthew in the Beatitudes, which Spurgeon calls, he says in the Beatitudes, he says, here you have a whole summary of the world reversed. Uh, where does blessing reside? Upon the poor, upon the mourners, upon the meek, upon uh, those who are peacemakers and those who are merciful, those who are persecuted, those who are ignored by society are elevated through the kingdom of God, according to the values of the kingdom of God. The gospel isn't about primarily changing society, but changing the human heart. That's what it's about, changing the human heart. But we understand when hearts are changed, a natural consequence of that is that societies will be changed. And we praise God for that. That has happened. That's what Tom Holland was indicating through his book, Dominion, Hospitals, Orphanages, The Sciences, The Abolishment of Slavery. These are all unthinkable apart from the influence of Christianity in the world. God's word is radical. Radical enough to turn the entire universe upside down, the way the world works. But I want you to know, friends, today, and this is especially important to understand in the 
politicized world that we live in, the, the polarized world that we lived in, live in, your mission, you, dear Christian, your mission should not be to turn the world upside down. No, that's not our job. That is not our job. But, but maybe I could put it this way. Your, your world isn't to, to turn the world upside down, but to turn people's worlds upside down. What do I mean by that? I mean to, to, to rock people's little word, worlds through conversion. Uh, to disturb the tranquil waters of people's complacent rejection of, of God through our own winsome witness and our earnest evangelism. That's what we should care about. That will upset people, make no doubt about it. It will either turn their worlds around through conversion or it will upset them and offend them. Well, one pastor says this, I wish Christians would upset the world in that kind of way because a lot of Christians are all about upsetting people, but not like that. He says they should be upsetting the world by bringing the grace of God to the world through the preaching of the word. This alone is able to bring the world back to its senses. Friends, the word of God can make sense of our crazed times. That's what we'll talk about more this evening in our evening sermon series in the following weeks. The word of God. Not just shouting louder. Not about the signs we put out front of our yard. Not about the posts we put on Facebook. Not about campaigning. It's not about debating. It's sharing the gospel. Changed hearts will change society. But let Acts 17 serve as a guarantee for you that when you value what God values, you will be persecuted. We see that Paul and Silas, even after they leave Thessalonica, the Thessalonians come for them. These Jews come for them, and they continue to persecute them. And this is all you need to be labeled a radical today. Just say the Bible is true and see how the world responds. So then a question is posed to us. Why not just abandon the word of God if it's going to mean persecution, if it's going to cause such grief? Why stick with it? And the answer is the third and the final thing we, we see this morning about the word of God, and that is it is authoritative. It's sufficient. It's radical. But it's authoritative. And that means that you and I, we're bound to believe the Bible and to submit the Bible, whether we like its conclusions or not. Whether we like what happens when people find out that we believe the Bible, we're bound to it because it comes from God. And if God says it, who never lies, it must be true. And then everything else comes what may. But we stand upon the word because it has authority. The Westminster Confession says the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not on the testimony of any man, any preacher, any person, any church, but it depends wholly upon God who is truth itself and the author of the Bible and therefore it is to be received simply because it is the word from God. It's authoritative. And we see that from the Jews in in Berea where Paul and Silas, they've escaped to, Look what it says there in verse 11, and we're going to conclude here by looking at these Bereans. Verse 11 says, They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now that's caught on, hasn't it? Last night at the hymn sing, we had an entire group that came from the Berean Baptist Church in Portage, right? And there's plenty of Berean churches around the world. Why do people take that name and put it to their church? Because we've recognized there's something beautiful about these people who what? Who recognize that the word of God has authority. Now we don't have it. 
on our bulletin, on our church website, on our sign, but we should be Bereans too. And how can we do that? How can we be Bereans? We follow their example in three ways. We'll conclude with this. Three things. First, we want to follow the attitude that they give to the scriptures. It says they received the word with all eagerness. The Greek word means forwardness of mind or, or readiness. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a, um, a disposition to receive something. It doesn't mean that they're naive and they'll just believe it and accept anything, but it means that they're leaning in. They're expecting good things to come when they open up God's word. They expect it will speak to them. They expect it will guide them. They expect it will not fail them. And so they're eager to read it. We struggle with that eagerness, don't we? Let's just be honest. Often we approach the scriptures like a child who is forced to uh, swallow some nasty cough syrup as opposed to approaching a, 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 a gourmet feast that's been laid before us. But that is what the Bible is for us. We, we should have the attitude of the psalmist when approaching the scriptures. The psalmist who tells us that the Bible is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The Bereans viewed the word of God as a great gift, as the greatest gift. That's why they, they received it. They, they took what was given them. But even that, they did with a thankful, eager, and expectant attitude. Why? Because what comes from God's hand is always good. It's always good. We should follow the Bereans secondly, not just in their attitude, but in the attentiveness or the attention that they give the scriptures. It says they examine the scriptures Daily. And this is a natural outworking of the first point, isn't it? Let's, let's think about that. If you come to God's word with eager expectation, then you're not going to treat it flippantly. And so they examine it, or some translations, they search the scriptures. It's not just that they don't just have a casual acquaintance with the Bible. They're investigating it. You know, I'm a great skimmer. I don't know about some of you. I learned it from my grandma. She said, Read the first sentence of the paragraph and the last sentence of the paragraph. And if you still understand the first, after you read the last, keep moving on. That helped a lot in seminary. Now you're all worried. Wow, boy. (laughs) When you're reading fiction, my grandma told me, and there's dialogue, just read what's in the quotes. You don't need the, the way they said it or what happened in between. Just read what they're saying. Okay, so I'm a great skimmer. all kinds of fun tips and tricks I learned from her, but the attention I give a work of fiction or even the greatest theological tome out there, that can in no way compare to the attention I must give the only book that was ever written by a divine author. The larger catechism unpacks the attention for us. Question 157. How is the word of God to be read? Answer. The holy scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them with a firm persuasion that they're the very word of God and that he only can enable us to understand them, with a desire to know them and believe and obey the will of God revealed in them with diligence and attention to the matter and the scope of them with meditation, with application, with self-denial, and with prayer. They're attentive to the word of God. They search the scriptures. Their attentiveness, those also... Described not just in terms of how they read the Bible, but how often. Did you see it? They examine the scriptures what? Daily. Daily. How are you doing with your daily Bible reading? Perhaps some of us feel that there's a 
artificiality to insisting one needs to have daily time in God's word, you know, quiet times, devotions, whatever you call them. Some people think, you know, or they have that reaction because they, they see that as sort of a forced or empty practice of, of the uh, fundamentalism of yesteryear. But let me just say this to you. There is no denying it. And we should not try to excuse our way out of this fact, which both scripture and experience prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that the best of Christians, the most faithful of Christians, the most godly of Christians have spent more time in God's word, not less. So, how to be a Berean? You give God's word attention, finally. Notice that we can learn this from the Bereans. It's the authority in which they give God's word. So the attitude with which they approach it, the attention that they give it, and the authority that they give it over man's word in particular. Because it says the Bereans examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What things? Paul's preaching. The apostle. Even somebody like him is not over or above the Bible. Now, that was recovered at the time of the Reformation in response to the medieval church, which had elevated the traditions of the church and the authority of, of bishops and especially the pope to be equal with the word of God. They didn't say it was more important than the word of God. They said it's equal, equal authority. Martin Luther, in response, says this. We must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is just a little sound that flies in the air and it soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth. Yes, greater than death and hell. For it is the power of God and it endures forevermore. That's why we preach the Bible here at Community. Perhaps you're visiting today. You want to know kind of what we're about? We're about the Bible. And when the Bible is preached, you can be certain what you're hearing is true. Because I'm not speaking to you today. Do you understand that? Yes, you hear my voice, you see me. But you need to understand that God is speaking when the Bible is preached. Second Helvetic Confession, also during the Reformation. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. When the Bible is central in preaching, you can know you're hearing God's voice. And so that means today, I want you to know what you hear is true. Believe this. You are a wretched sinner. You are destined for hell because you are a rebel against your maker. You are a wretched sinner. Believe that the wages of sin is death. But believe that the grace of Jesus is greater than all of our sin. And that through faith in him you can have everlasting life. And don't believe it because I'm saying it. Believe it because God has said it. And if that's difficult for you today to believe what God says, let me invite you just to, to pray. To pray that God would guide you into all truth. To give you a, a new heart, new eyes, that he would be your vision. So that you would see what is true. That you would believe it. And that you would be changed. Indeed, that your world would be turned upside down. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe what you have written in your scripture because it comes from you. The almighty God, and you never lie. You are truth itself. Help us to believe that your word is sufficient for all of our needs, that it's radical to change our lives and even change the word, the world. 
Help us to believe that it has authority over our lives. And whenever we hear something that rubs us the wrong way, something we have questions about, if we return to your scriptures and we find these things to be true, would we have the, the humility to submit to what you say? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.